Welcome to the Future of Education, a show where we consider what our education system should look like in 20 years. I'm your host, Lee Elberson, and I ask you to join me on a journey to the future as experts from the Charlottesville community explore our education system through a variety of different lenses. I'm joined today by a very amazing guest, Kayla Somerville of the uh, Computers for Kids. She has dedicated her life to serving Charlottesville's youth, and I, I want to thank her for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to uh, talk about education and specifically how it relates to the out of school and after school time. Awesome. Well, Kayla, I wonder, would you mind um, giving us some background on, on what sort of impact education made on you growing up and who were some of your greatest influences? Absolutely. Um, I am uh, not a Charlottesville native, but I moved here when I was nine months old. And I am a product of the Charlottesville City School System. And I, to this day, although I can't remember what I did yesterday, um, to this day, I have very, very fond and very, very vivid memories of my elementary school days. I am a proud Burnley Moran Bobcat graduate. And I think um, it was having, you know, throughout my K through five years at, at Burnley Moran, having fabulous teachers who took an interest in me and in education and supported the entire class. That's excellent. You know, I'm curious when you uh, when you were growing up, Kayla, did you have any uh, perception of how nonprofits worked, and, and was there any forecasting that you might end up in in working for a nonprofit? No, I, I probably didn't even really understand what a nonprofit was, or certainly not the type of nonprofit that I found myself in. I, I, I you know, for me sort of interesting how I made that leap into the nonprofit sector. So I, as I said, grew up having very fond memories of um, elementary school, having positive interactions with education throughout my, um, you know, throughout my education in um, secondary schools. Um, but, and I thought at one point, you know, before I went to college, I thought, well, I think I wanna go into education. I, I enjoy working with young people. Um, my teachers told me I should be a teacher, you know, you'd be great at it. Um, people that I knew in the community encouraged me to pursue education. Um, so because everyone said I should do it, I was like, no way. <laughs> I'm not going to college to become an educator. So I went to college trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, I, after about my second year, started thinking, well, you know, that education thing does seem like it's calling me, you know, maybe that's what I need to do. So I started taking early childhood classes and immediately became discouraged um, because now you have to remember this was also uh, 20 plus, uh, many more than 20 plus years ago. And at the time I was really interested in being an educator that would have a classroom that was set up such that the students would be playing and exploring and learning through learning through play. I did not see myself as standing in front of the class and providing instruction. And what I learned through some of my education classes is that was still a pretty new concept um, and that it wasn't going to be a teaching style that was going to be welcomed everywhere. And so thinking about, hey, I wanna live where I wanna live and not where I can find a job that's gonna jive with my um, educational philosophy, I just sort of really grew more and more disenfranchised with um, education and, and realizing that as an educator, as an elementary school educator, you have very little control of your classroom. You have so many people to answer to, you know, principals and, you know, school board and, and rightfully so, but it just really felt very um, more constrictive than I, than, than what I was interested in. So I, I didn't pursue education, um, ended up getting a job and then happily um, discovered an opportunity to start working for an organization that was getting ready to start in town um, that was going to mirror uh, marriage 
my two interests, technology and education. So that's that's how I got to be where I am. Awesome. Well, Kayla, it's uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, and I'm gonna ask you a little bit more about uh, how students find out about C4K, but you talked a little bit about this intrinsic drive of like a, a calling, right? Or like finding a passion. Um, yeah, I, I guess it, now that you've uh, now that you've found a career, if you had to go back and tell your younger self something as you were going through college, would you have any one piece of advice for finding that calling sooner? Well, I, I don't I don't know that I would have found it sooner. I think I just had to, I had to work things out in you know in my head about not doing what everyone said I should do and. Um, but really what drove me to realize what my passion was, it was actually volunteering. Um, I volunteered at an after-school program um, in the community where I was going, where I was attending college. And it was a after-school program for children who lived in public housing. And I loved that job so much. In fact, I would schedule all my classes around that volunteer job so that I could volunteer five days a week. Um, and that's really what showed me that this is the population I wanna work with. I really truly love um, being in an educational environment, but one that's not, you know, doesn't, it doesn't have to be a school. Yeah, uh, I think this something, a takeaway I hear is uh, start volunteering earlier. Charlottesville <laughs> is a very giving community I think that there are uh, a number of, uh, there's enough nonprofits that you can find a nonprofit that can utilize your skills, obviously always looking for volunteers. Um, so volunteer earlier. I wish I would have taken that advice when I was younger. Well, and also volunteering gives you a great opportunity to explore interest. You know, I, I thought I wanted to do something in medicine and I volunteered in the hospital. I was like, whoa. <laughs> Not for me, you know, so just really getting out and having opportunities um, in the community to learn more about what my interests are and to figure out, you know, is this something I can see myself doing long term or is this just a passing, um, passing interest? Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, for everyone watching, thanks so much for tuning in. Just to let you know, Kayla and I are going to run through uh, some historical perspective of education. We're going to do some future thinking. What could it look like in 20 years? And we're going to save time at the end for some of your questions. So go ahead and just type your questions into the, the comment bar and we will save some, some time at the end for those questions. Uh, but before we move on to the historical review, you know, Kayla, we've we've had some guests on the show from many of the different school systems, but Computers for Kids fills a, a, a very specific need in, in the community. But unlike the school systems, they need to become aware of it. So, so, so where do most of the Computers for Kids students come from and how do they become aware of your programming? It's a great question. And it's something that has recently been a challenge of ours. So we um, have recently restructured our staffing um, until recent, well, un until, until very recently, um, it's been more organic about how students hear about us. Um, at one point, we were able to partner with the schools, um, students who come to C4K, let me rewind, students who come to C4K um, to be eligible to participate have to qualify for the free or reduced lunch program. So our target audience are, are youth from lower income households. Um, back in the day when the school personnel knew who qualified, we had contacts within the schools who would identify students who would have an interest and talk to them about the program, offer us opportunities to come into the school to recruit. Um, now that that information is confidential, um, that, that we don't really have that link with, with the school systems. Um, and so we try, you know, we try lots of different things, but the challenge has been is we've never had a staff person that's dedicated to recruitment of young people. So we have um, switched some responsibilities around in our organization. And we have a staff person who's been with us for over five years, Tricia Howell, who her new role will be mentor and member 
recruitment and retention. So making sure that C4K has a presence in the community. You know, how can you recruit students from neighborhoods if they don't know who you are and what you do and, and um, what you have to offer? So we really hope in the coming months to see ourselves much more integrated in the community. You know, when we first started, we were in the community and I did a lot of that work. But as we've grown and, provi and now are providing more services, um, that has prevented us from having the resources to do that, but we've decided this is, is critical and, and we're putting re resources toward that. Awesome. Uh, I guess in, in thinking about your programming, it's probably helpful now for us to switch to historical perspective. Um, you've been with C4K for how many years now? A little over 20 years. A little over 20 years. Wow. Uh, that Congratulations. That's amazing to have leadership in the organization for that, that time period. You've probably seen some pretty significant changes. How has Computers for Kids specifically evolved from when you first started there in terms of mission and the programs that you offer? Sure. Yeah, I'll speak uh, first to C4K um, and then I can speak you know, sort of nonprofits in general. But um, so you'll notice I'm using the term C4K um, and not computers for kids, and that's intentional. Um, when our organization started, um, we started because there was a need for young people to have computers. Um, we started out and the organization began because they did a survey and it was actually done in the county school system to determine how many kids have computers at home. Um, and if they don't have computers at home, would they want one? And what, what that survey showed is there was almost a direct correlation between the number of kids without computers who wanted one and those who qualify for the free and reduced lunch program. And so the initial idea by the founders of the organizations was let's get a computer and put it in the house of a, in the um, home of a, of a young person. And our first corporate sponsor, um, Virginia National Bank said, whoa, 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 giving a kid a tool is great, but they need the support and the resources to figure out what to do with it. And so they asked the um, founders to go back to the board drawing board and figure out how they could um, improve upon the initial model. So what came out of that is uh, what we have today, which is um, Computers for Kids and C4K, first and foremost, has always been a mentoring program. Initially, you know, 20 years ago, we were a computer mentoring program. Um, all of our programming has always been youth-centered and um, project-based, um, but what's changed is, you know, as, as we saw the workforce change, um, as we see people, you know, with, with more and more people having access to these type of devices and having a computer in their back pocket, there was less of a need for computers. And, and but we felt, wow, you know, we know that kids benefit from one-to-one -one and mentoring how can we remain relevant? And so what we decided to do was to expand our services. And we like to now say we're STEAM powered, science, technology, engineering, art, which not everyone does, um, art and math. And so we continue, you know, so it allowed us to redefine technology and to expand it to STEAM. That's excellent. Uh, so, in, in general, you said, uh, like, maybe speaking specifically about nonprofits, uh, is it that nonprofits offer a certain amount of flexibility in being able to adapt to changing needs in like the job market and even like local communities? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, one of the things that attract, you know, once I got involved with a nonprofit, one of the things that I've really never take for granted, and I think this is particularly um, true to local grassroots organizations like C4K, is that there's less red tape, there's less bureaucracy, 
We don't have a State Department of Education that we have to answer to. And so we have the opportunity to be much more nimble. We have the opportunity to um, pivot and adjust our programming. Um, C4K has always looked to our youth and to the families to figure out, you know, what, what are their needs? What, what services or what um, things do they need and how, how can we support them within the confines of our mission? And so it has allowed us to tweak our programming so that we're addressing the needs of our, of our community. And yeah. the work, I mean, when I say community, I think of community, you know, as we're supporting education, you know, we're supporting schools, but we're also trying to think about because we're working with youth, we work with sixth through 12th graders. We're also trying to think about how can we ensure that we are providing and imparting skills that are going to be valuable in the workforce because we want our youth, if they choose to remain in Charlottesville, we want them to be able to find a, you know, a more than a living wage job in our community absolutely. and support our local economy. Yes, absolutely. I'm hearing a lot of parallels to when I, I spoke with Frank Friedman a few weeks ago <laughs> about what PVC's mission is and, and how they adapt and trying to support the local community. And this does seem in contrast to the way uh, traditional school systems and universities are structured in that changes take a long time to, to implement. And like you said, there is a lot of bureaucracy and part of that goes with having a large organization. If you have thousands of employees and, and hundreds of programs, it's very difficult to, to rapidly change that. One thing I'm curious about in terms of the, the students you serve uh, I think you and I have talk, talked about this maybe a few years ago. Uh, we try to, to, to monitor the students after they've left our programs and, and, and figure out you know, where, where they've ended up. And we've talked about difficulties there, but what would you consider as a success story? Uh, do you, in terms of the, a client that comes into C4K for you know, maybe a couple years, how do you measure success in your programs? Um, that, that is, you know, when we, when we speak about challenges, I will definitely go into more detail about um, measuring success. Um, so I, I'm not going to speak at this time about what the organization measures, but for me personally, success is when a young person leaves our program having the resources and the support that they need to meet their to meet their personal goals because what one young person desires you know we don't have a goal of every youth that comes through C4K we don't have a goal or an expectation that they all enter STEM fields or that they all go to college what i want for each young person is and and i think what i want for each young person is that they have the resources that they need to achieve their goals. And I think one thing, again, that nonprofits have an advantage over a school system is that um, we, because of our one-to-one -one mentoring, on any given day, if you walk into C4K, we have one-to-one -one mentors. We also have group mentors. So you're bringing together such a cross-section of our community. And these young people are being surrounded by people who are caring um, about their, their welfare, but come from all walks of life. And so I've seen time and time again where a student has an interest um, and, but doesn't know where to start or doesn't have the resources. Um, and a mentor is like, oh, I know someone, let me make a phone call or, you know, and I think that's one of the things that is often overlooked. If you are a young person um, who has grown up in poverty, chances are your parents, at least in sh the Charlottesville model, if you're living in public housing, chances are, you know, your neighbors are all blue collar workers. And so your field of vision often is very, fairly narrow and your, um, your resources um, and contacts 
can be limited. And so that's something that I feel that bringing people together from the community really does a good job of, which is expanding those networks, social networks that oftentimes under um, students from low-income houses households just don't have as much much opportunity. Absolutely. Yes, I think, um, yeah, and thinking about some of your answers, it, it sparked me to, to think about when when students are, are going through, it sounds like what C4K is really hoping to do is, is to help them advocate for resources, because I, I definitely see that from our end, you know, very resource communities at, know all of the resources available to them, take advantage of those resources. And when you get to more marginalized communities, under-resourced communities, they don't know all of the resources available to them. So it sounds like when, when a student comes in to C4K, you help them with that discovery process of first to, to figure out what's out there and then to realize where to go when they need help. So I guess, is, is, is that part of the picture painted in, in success? I, absolutely. I mean, to me, if a, if a student can meet their goals um, and successfully, then 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 to me, you know, we, we, we celebrate. Yeah, you know, I think uh, another term that gets thrown around quite a bit is is how we define success. You know, I I feel like that term sometimes is is it's pick like we paint it as going to a four-year college and graduating and getting a high-paying job, that is success. Um, I, I wonder if there's a better term, and I've been trying to think about the concept of fulfillment and thinking about, will you be fulfilled in your career? Um, you know, I, I guess, is that something that resonates with, with you when you think about helping kids? Is that maybe a difference between fulfillment and like success being tied to financial success? I, you know, that's, that's a good question. It's, it's something, um, it's interesting. My opinion of that has, has changed over the years. Um, I am someone that needs to do a job where I feel fulfilled. Um, I've met many happy people, um, <laughs> my husband included, where that's not important. You know, like he wants to um, work with competent, capable, kind people, but does he need to do something that he's passionate about? No. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think everyone's different. Um, I think for me, I oftentimes, people will ask me, you know, how, how do you define success for your students? And because our students, um, I, I often will say to me, success is if their child or their children are not eligible to participate in our program. So meaning that we've helped through, you know, either getting into school or getting a job, we've helped move that family out of poverty. And that to me is, is a real success story when, um, you know, maybe they come back in. And another success story to me is when our students come back to mentor because that to me celebrates, um, it demonstrates their understanding of how valuable the program is and how valuable it is to give back and that they're choosing to give back to an organization that must've meant something to them. Absolutely. I think, you, you know, I've always thought of breaking the poverty cycle is akin to, you know, it takes a village to, to raise a child. I think it, it takes a, a village of resources to, to help break the poverty cycle. What are some of the other resources you think necessary to help a student break the poverty cycle besides C4K? Oh gosh, I mean, there's there's a- there's And you can no talk about generalities if you don't wanna specifically leave anyone out or leave any organization away. Yeah, it would be, it would be really hard. I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, we often, we often are asked to report out on our high school graduation rate. And, and it always makes us cringe because we always uh, say, and when I say we, I mean C4K staff, you know, we, our, our thought is it's not just us. C4K is one small part of that young person's day or their years. 
you know, it's, it's anything from that one special teacher that would track you down and make sure you were okay, make sure you were doing what you needed to be doing that told you that, no, you can go to college, you know, to programs like Claiborne that provide, you know, a kid who's motivated and wants to do it, but just is lacking some of the resources, you know, there's, I mean, I think that's, I think that is definitely something that's wonderful about the Charlottesville community is that there are so many resources. And I think most of us try really hard not to replicate what others are doing. So instead, you know, I think at one point C4K was pursuing how do we help support through the college application process? And we're like, well, we're not going to start a program because there's this amazing program in town, Claiborne Education, who knows what they're doing um, and have been very successful. So let's rather than creating a program, partner with them. And I, and I, I think, um, you know, one of the challenges is also is just being aware of, of, of the innumerable resources in our community that alone sometimes feels like a full-time job, just keeping apprised of all the resources for our young people. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm just happy that we live in a community where people are, are willing to collaborate and, and help uh, in an effort to help our young people. Absolutely. I, I always tell people that it took me a while to understand why Charlottesville was so special when I first moved here, because obviously everybody from Charlottesville thinks Charlottesville is the best. But I think the the nonprofit density, when I calculated it, was higher in Charlottesville than almost anywhere else in the country. And I think that just shows that we live in a community that likes to give back. In thinking about some of the the benefits, you know, we talked about how nonprofits can be very nimble and adapt to changes in, in the economic climate and the job market. You know, the other side of that coin, I guess, is you already mentioned that a challenge is that if every nonprofit is, is being very nimble, you have to stay up to date, not within a year, within a month to figure out what are the new offerings so that you can help students reach those resources Kayla, what do you think some of the other challenges in your space are and, and what have been some of those challenges in the last 20 years? Well, I think, and I don't think this is unique um, to C4K, but you know, I, I alluded to this earlier is that um, how we measure our impact um, we don't have a limitless budget that allows us to hire an outside evaluator every year to come in and, and survey kids. Um, we also, our youth um, are tested constantly in the school system. And so we don't want to constantly be surveying and testing. And, you know, we, we really try to establish ourselves as a educational organization, but that for the youth, it does not feel like at school. It doesn't feel, because some youth have negative connotations when it comes to school, not, not all, but we wanna make sure that we're creating an educational environment that is fun and engaging and doesn't involve a, 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 lot, of, a lot of testings. Um, so I would say that that's, that's always a challenge. Um, you know, oftentimes we are told this is what you need to report out on and that's fine, but it often takes time away from trying to figure out what should we really be, um, you know, what, how can we better figure out what our impact is? Cause we know, we know, um, through stories and you know, numerous stories, the impact we have, but how do you convert that to numbers? Yes, and I, I can definitely empathize with the difficulty there. I think as, as humans, we, we understand stories and, and stories really help us feel good about the, the, the impact of the work. I think numbers are very difficult. You have to read between the lines many times. And with a program like yours, you're likely making impact that might not be seen for years, or maybe it might right. not even be until like they have a career that they look that they finally reflect and think, wow, it was really that after school program where I met this mentor who introduced me to so like, you don't right. process that until many years later. And 
hopefully they reach out and they tell you that story, but that's not always the case, right? So right. It, I, I think that's the difficulty in, in trying to come up with, with those, those sort of measurements. So I think the stories, in my opinion, always, you know, that, that when I look at organizations, I like to read the stories. The numbers, you know, they, I, they're a good thing to put on uh, for, for donors and it's a good thing to, to publish on, on the website, but the stories I think are very compelling. So I, I'll always love to read the C4K stories. Yeah, and I think the other thing that um, is, is a challenge and a strength is staying relevant, right? Like knowing, having a pulse on what do the youth need? What do the schools, how do they need support? Um, what is what does the workplace need and making sure that we're supporting all of those those initiatives. Um, and I know you asked about CPRK specifically. Um, the other challenge we've had, and thus the need for us to drop the computers for kids is a big challenge for us has been conveying to the community what we do. You know, we did a survey when we were trying to figure out do we rebrand? Did we come up with a new name? And what we found is that we had a very positive, um, when people were asked about computers for kids, they all had very positive feelings about it, but no one could tell you what we did. Oh, that's that group that gives computers to kids. But no one knew we were a mentoring program. And that is, you know, the single most important thing to our organization is, is the one-to-one -one mentoring. And so, um, you know, we've had some, we've had, and that's why we dropped the computers for kids and they're just going with C4K, but that, but that has been a challenge of how do we make sure that the community at large um, knows, knows what we do. It, it, I can, again, empathize with you because it's always easier to market something that is very direct. For us, if you need help with ACT, right, you need this test score to go up, we, you can market that very well. But the more you try to, to, to make it holistic, the explanation becomes longer and longer. And I think it's very difficult as a consumer or a donor or a participant to synthesize anything that takes several sentences or a couple paragraphs to explain in a holistic nature. So it's not an easy problem that you're trying to yeah, solve. Yeah, no. Well, Ian, and I always tell people, it's like, if you want to know what we do, stop by one day when when the youth are in the space. And and that's, I mean, people walk in and they immediately get it. It's just, it, it's really obvious. Um, and there's a, there's a good, there's always a good vibe in that space just because of the, um, diversity of, of, of people that that tend to be um, in the space on any given day but that's again hard to capture and print sometimes I always walk by your office every time I go to Brazos I always scroll down <laughs> and I, your office is right in front so I always see if you're there uh, to come in and, and bug you but yeah it's always exciting to just look in and yeah definitely anyone who's interested there's so many exciting things that happen when you go in there you look and you think oh there's 3D printers and there's building stuff. There's all these interesting things in there. And it, it just tells a, a good story of, of what the kids get to do when they come in. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, I, I just I have a, a question that I've been posing to my guests and that we talked a little bit about it before we started the show. Uh, by my research, if you look at college tuition, only about 1.3% of college tuition is dedicated to scholarships. I'll, I'll just ask you, frankly, does, does that statistics or does that percentage surprise you? Um, yes. I mean, I, I, I don't know what I would have guessed, but that seems rather low. Right. I would have guessed 20%. So I, I guess maybe the, the follow-up for that is we have this expectation that it's that it's higher, that college is, that we want it, I think, aspirationally to be more affordable. But I, I think the re, the, what I had issues with is I confused financial aid with scholarship, and those are, are not the same, right? Financial aid is saying, we will give you a loan, which you will have to pay back, some of which has interest. Um, and so... I, I like when when you hear a statistic like that. What what do you think this means for equity considerations? 
Well, you know, when you mentioned that one point, you, you shared that stat with me um, before we met and I, I, I looked it up because I was like this, I, not that I did trust you, but I just wanted to see who are they going to? And the scholarships, you know, there's all these myths about scholarships are only for youth from low income households. And that's absolutely a myth. They're merit-based and you can be low income or you can be uber, <laughs> you know, you could come from a very wealthy household. And so for equity considerations, I really feel that more opportunities need to be available for need-based scholarships. 100% agree. Well, let's, uh, we're going to pause on that for a second. We're going to come back to it. Let's uh, change our mindset. We've been thinking about historical data and perspective. Now we're going to fast forward to the future. It's kind of fun. I like this. This is the <laughs> aspirational side of it. Um, so let, let's, let's first start and, and tell me if we could design it however we wanted, Kayla, what would you want our educational system and nonprofit support systems to look like in 20 years? That is always a, a, a really tough question. Um, and the cop-out or sort of lame answer is, I, I, I don't know. I mean, what I, but what I do know is that I think the future of education needs to continue. And I, and I think this is a shift that I've seen in the 20 years that I've been with C4K is, is a much, is a more attention on the young person as an individual and what he, she, or they bring into the classroom. And, and, and by that, I mean the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, if this young person is dealing with a tremendous amount of trauma, they're not going to be able to learn. And so what supports can the school and others provide um, to get the student to the point where they can even have the um, neurological ability to learn? Um, so I think, you know, meeting each child where, where they are on that given day, and that's hard, and that's really hard in a big system, but I think that's going to be critical for the success of education. Um, I think, you know, I, 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 you know, what I can't predict is what's going on with technology. How is the workforce going to change? It's going to change. It's changing rapidly. Um, and what, however it changes, we need to make sure that our education supports can change quickly enough so that we can prepare our young people for the workforce. Um, I also hope, and I am seeing a little of this, um, I'm hoping the educational system will move towards students taking more ownership of their learning. Um, so, and, and by that, I don't mean, you know, here, here's all the stuff, go do it on your own, but really allowing youth to have a voice in what it is they want to learn. You know, these are sort of the foundational things we need to do, but what do you want to learn more about, you know, and giving students the resources so that they can dig deeper and pursue things that are of real interest to them and sort of get through the stuff that's of less interest, but, you know, still still demonstrate proficiency in that area, but having uh, more flexibility and, and encouraging um, kids to really um, tap into what, what is of interest to them. I love that answer because there's a lot of follow-up questions I have for you, Kayla. I, let's first start with the, like focusing on the individual. I've, I've been thinking about this as well. Do, do you think we should start having students explore specializations earlier? And, and by that, I mean, maybe expose fifth and sixth graders to in the school system to more of what C4K does and says, hey, here's some, some STEAM, some science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics fields earlier. And, and if they have a preference or a passion do we start having them take more of those classes earlier instead of keeping them generalized for so long? 
That's a really good question. Um, I I don't know. I can I I see. I mean, I think there are even ways of exposing young people to professions and skills without having to pigeonhole them into a track. So through project-based learning, even in kindergarten, you can be exploring what architects do or what a chef does. I mean, there are ways to introduce um, professions while incorporating it into the curriculum. Um, you know, I, for someone as a, as a young person growing up who, who did even after college, you know, it wasn't until I found the job at C4K that I knew what I wanted to do. My concern is always if we put kids on this, you know, this track, then what if they get, you know, to 10th grade and it's like, I hate this. This is, you know, like, how do you backtrack? How do you get them back onto something else? So, so I, I, I don't know. I, I think exposure to lots of things and letting, I mean, I, I like to tell this one story is there was a young girl in our program who had a mentor and um, they were talking about coding. She's like, oh, no, I don't, we do that at school. I hate it, you know, didn't have any interest in it. And she, I don't know how, how it came about, but at some point um, she did experiment or try some coding with the support of her mentor and next thing you know, she realized, oh, I like this and I'm good at it. You know, she ended up um, designing tennis shoes that light up, but they light up different colors depending on how heavy the strike um, of, of, the, of the shoe is. And so all of a sudden you take this young person who had no interest. Now, do I think she's gonna become a programmer? programmer? Probably not, but at least now she has the confidence in knowing that she's got the skill sets should she want to do that. And it just opens up, um, hopefully gives her some confidence in pursuing some other STEM related fields. Yeah, I think you had a, a very succinct and, and, and a great answer for the specialization because I, I think about that, but I think your point is, is probably, um, it's very topical given what you said about the changing job market, right? If, if the job markets and the needs are changing more rapidly than they ever have, then there's actually not as much need for a specialist. Certainly if you're gonna be a theoretical physicist or you're gonna be a doctor, you're gonna be a lawyer, those tracks maybe don't vary as much, but those represent a very small subset of all of the job yeah. tracks out there. So being more generalized is, uh, is, is maybe a more valuable skill set and, and having a, a more general view of, of uh, the different trades that are out there. You well, also hit, we're, yeah, sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go. You're the guest. I, <laughs> well, and what we're, what we're seeing is that, um, you know, employers are saying the skills, sort of the the, the big skills that, that they're they're wanting um, are, you know, are these critical thinking, problem solving, um, uh, communication skills, and these are these are all skills that can be learned through through project based learning and, and youth centered curriculum. Absolutely, I always perk up when I hear project based learning because I think as an employer and somebody who fosters interns and uh, you know it helps kids prepare for the future i think project-based learning helps students prepare for the execution side of work school and, and a lot of the academic structure is is based on more of the the conceptual base and, and maybe the theoretical aspects of it which again if you're going to be a theoretical physicist that is very helpful but if you're going to go work a job it's much in my opinion, more helpful for you to be able to look at a project, understand what deadline structure looks like, and, and be able to execute on that and know how to advocate for resources, as you've said. And with the, the state of in, infinite information at our fingertips, do you really, I mean, why do you have to memorize the chemical structure of elements if you just, if you know where to find it, right? Being able to find the resources is more important. So, I love that aspect of project-based learning. So 
in thinking about the future, how do we get more of that in the school systems? It should we just go to 100% project based learning? Well, you know, I'm, I'm sure the answer is no. And I don't, I, I don't know why. I mean, there, there are certain things that you do just have to learn, you know, there, there's certain math that is is harder to do in, in project based learning. But um, I would like to give a shout out to the um, public schools for um, one of the things that uh, I have a daughter in sixth grade. And this year, they did not have to do a history SOL. So I thought the approach that the, the department took was really ingenious. And, and what that was is, you know, whatever time period they were studying in history is the way they presented it was there are always several sides to every story. And so what we want you to do is research and learn about, you know, what this side thought and what that side thought. And then you yourself come up with, you know, you process that information and you come up with a conclusion. So rather than saying, you know, because we, we know our history books have been notorious for telling only a very narrow side of the story. And now all of a sudden they're talking about equity. They're talking about um, how we've never heard about, you know, this group that was had a prominent role in this particular part of our history, how they, you know, that whole history was just <laughs> whitewashed. And, um, you know, so giving the kids, you know, because again, like, like you said, you don't need to remember the dates for everything. You can look that up. You'll have, you have that access at your pockets, but thinking critically about what occurred and being able to formulate your own opinion is going to be of so much more value, in my opinion, to you, you being able to, um, you know, be a good worker and a good citizen. Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, I think when we think about project based learning, implementing it at the public school level is difficult, as we've mentioned, when you have that many cogs in a machine to be able to, to implement. I, yeah, I always wonder if disruption is, is a good thing. And I've heard some people talk about the future of decentralized education systems. And there's probably a better term for that, but I think what it means is that historically or traditionally, we look at education as you are gonna go to elementary school, then you'll go to middle school, then you'll go to high school, then you'll go to college, and you'll go to one, more or less one institution for each of those. Decentralized education would say, by the time you're 20 years old, you need about 2000 credit hours uh, and you need to de dedicate a certain percentage of those to these core knowledge skills and understanding history. And then there's some flexibility after that. It, if we move to a system like that, it would seem to me that there would be a significant need for nonprofits educational support. How, Leah, what do you think about this concept of decentralized education and, and where would an organization like C4K fit in? Well, this, you know, I had, this is sort of a, a new concept to me, so I haven't had a lot of time to think about it. I, I think my gut, you know, sort of my immediate response is that works really well for a motivated student. But what about that student who may not be as motivated? or have the resources to make that a positive experience. And so um, it, that type of system seems like it would take, you know, more mentors, you know, I mean, having that person to guide you through the process, to encourage you when things get tough. Um, it sounds like it could be something that the parents have to be super engaged with. And as we learned through the pandemic, um, highlighted even more is that, you know, that's easier for some families to accommodate than others. And so um, in theory, I like the idea, but in practice, I have more questions than, than answers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
Yeah, one thing we I, I think we've learned in the pandemic is that school systems serve more than just education. You know, they are accountability measures. The students learn um, how, how to show up somewhere on time, stay there, stay engaged in only one thing. Whereas we know that if you put a student or even an adult in front of a computer, they're not likely to do that same thing for an hour, right? A little notification is going to catch your interest and then they're going to be bouncing around all over the place. And so, yeah, I, I think you're right that it's not something that's likely to change rapidly, but it is an interesting idea. And as you said, there is a small subset of, I guess what I would classify as intrinsic learners, right? These are people that are, are going to be goal driven and you say, you need to do this and they will do it almost autonomously. But we know that's a small subset. Um, and then you've also highlighted something also that we know is that uh, resource wealthy families are, are likely to, to have an advantage in this because again, they're gonna be aware of all these resources. So in order to, to make it equitable, we need programs like C4K and, and other programs to, to help students advocate and be aware of those resources. Well, I wanna be respectful of your time, but I do wanna take some time to just sort of uh, think about what we could do now uh, if these are some of the changes that we want to see happen. So we talked a, a lot about uh, project-based learning and you know implementing it at school systems. How, if that is a goal and, and we do see the benefit of project-based learning, how can organizations like you know, per, perhaps Claiborne and C4K and, and other nonprofits and the public school systems and the independent school systems and universities and PVCC, how, how do we get together and, and collaborate more? If I've, I've heard interest in, in everyone with project-based learning, how can we collaborate more to make it happen? That is the, that is the million dollar uh, question. Um, there, there is a group that's, I guess it's not new, but it still feels sort of new. Um, it's called CANDID, and I'm ashamed that I can't immediately come up with, with the acronym, but it's, it's a network of youth serving organizations. And, um, you know, Charlottesville has a network for early childhood. So there, there's, um, I forget what it's, what it's called, but there's, there's a partnership of, of people who are serving birth to, to five. Um, and so some folks came together and said, hey, if they've, got, if they've got this group together where they're sharing resources, where they're not duplicating services, why aren't the groups that are serving youth doing the same thing? So, so um, organizations like that, I, I think the challenge with any of these type of efforts is that they're often run by volunteers and they're often run by people who are already trying to run nonprofits and, and you know, have full-time jobs. And so oftentimes they're very good intentions, but being able to follow through um, it, it is the hard part. So, so maybe figuring out, you know, I, I do think that if we're going to truly collaborate, there needs to be um, a staff person that that's, that that's their role. And, you know, and then the question is at what level, you know, is it at the city? Is it at the school? Is it in the community? But I think having, you know, that be intentional and not just some, a, a second thought, if we truly want to be able to um, be more seamless in our delivery of services. Yes, absolutely. And, um, yeah, again, I, I think the I've always thought the Achilles heel of a generous person is inability to say no, right? As you said, <laughs> you just you keep volunteering until 100 organizations are each getting 1% and there's not much you can do. So it's, it's tough to, to focus your efforts. Uh, well, Kaylee, you've got lots of supports. We probably have time for a couple of questions. Uh, there's a couple of Claiborne families that have uh, chimed in. So thanks for thanks for asking some questions. One of those is great. It's actually always top of my mind. Uh, this one basically states that uh, the, this parent, she says that transportation is, is clearly an issue in, in Charlottesville. And um, it's in, in the communities we're trying to serve that C4K serves. How does C4K handle the transportation issue in trying to get students to and from the center? 
that, you know, if you ask mom, any nonprofit in Charlottesville, you know, I've been going to these nonprofit meetings for 20 plus years. And, and when you ask people, what are your biggest challenges? It's money and transportation. I mean, and, and sometimes it's flipped, but it's, but those are always the top two. Um, and so it remains a challenge for us. I mean, one of the things that we've always had to do is we've always had to um, be housed in a location where a large percentage of our population can get to us. So we are in the X building. Um, we are surrounded by three public housing developments. So there are kids in the neighborhood who can walk there. Um, another thing that we've been extremely grateful for, um, although we're worried about what this is gonna look like next year, is um, the city schools have allowed students who come to C4K to ride the school bus to C4K, whether it's their designated bus or not, because we are on the city school bus stop route. Um, that helps kids to get there. It doesn't get them home. So it still eliminates young people who, who don't have transportation um, and it certainly doesn't doesn't help um, with our county residents. Um, there's as many of you may be aware um, through the American Rescue Plan there are there have been there are millions of dollars that are coming into our city and county school systems and 20 percent of those funds must be spent on out of school and after school programming. Now that could be done at the school or it could be done by the community. And so one of the things we're trying to do is we've um, sent out, we, we, we've contacted the local school systems and said, hey, this is a great opportunity for us to try to sort out this transportation. You know, what does this look like? Does this mean we go to you in the schools? Does it mean that you help with transportation? Because I think what um, nonprofits, what we as a nonprofit have to do is build a case. If we want to add anything to our budget, we need to build a case that, you know, providing transportation is going to increase um, participation and increase participation in communities that we haven't served yet. So we're trying to figure out how can we take advantage of some of this funding that's coming into the community. Um, and pilot some programs so that we can figure out what works with regards to transportation and, and hope, hopefully ultimately absorb it into our budget, but it's gonna take community support. Sorry, long-winded answer. No, I knew that that was a tough one and it is not, if you had solved it, I think you would have had the million dollar idea in Charlottesville. I mean, in a perfect world, what I would, what I would really love is that, you know, you know, this is pie in the sky, but I would love it if, you know, all the youth serving agencies could be in one building. And then it'd be a lot easier for the schools to send a bus because not only are they coming to C4K, but now all of a sudden students could go to Lighthouse Studio, they could go to Music Resource Center, they could go to Boys and Girls Club, or they could go to all three or four in one day, you know, but having a centralized place because all of us are fighting this, how do we deal with transportation? But if it's just one entity, it's easier to solve. But that, that's been my dream for 20 plus years, but not yet, <laughs> I'm keeping at it. Yeah, all right, one, one more question. This is a great one. Um, I have a question from a guest and he says, uh, I've never I've never been a teacher and I've, I've never taught anything, but I have a couple of, uh, technical hobbies and, and interests and, and part of my job field. Is this the type of thing that, that I could uh, volunteer with at C4K? And I guess the broader question for you is, is C4K looking for volunteers and, and what do you look for? We always are looking for volunteers um, and you actually are the perfect person because our, our belief is youth learn best in shoulder to shoulder learning. And so at C4K, there are times when the mentor is the teacher and other times the, the, the C4K member is the teacher. And so what we tell folks is you just have, a, just have to have a curiosity and willingness to learn. I think the best thing a mentor can do is if a student says, hey, I wanna do this and 
you say, you know what, I have no idea how to do that, but let's go figure it out together. And that learn, you know, modeling how to use the resources that you have available to learn is invaluable. Awesome. And and we have lots of training and staff support. So if, if you ever get in a pinch, there's always there's always someone there to help out. But um, someone who doesn't know it all is our favorite type of volunteer. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, Kayla. Really appreciate it. All of your insight into what C4K does and educational support in general. Uh, and thanks for everyone for watching. A lot of supporters uh, for C4K. So thanks for that. Um, if you view it later, um, you can view it on Spotify, Google, Apple, and a variety of other podcasts. If you're watching it and you have any questions, put them in the comments line. I will make sure to relay them to Kayla. She's very responsive and is happy to answer any questions. Uh, ask you to tune in for future weeks. We're going to have uh, some special guests from St. Anne's Belfield, um, some of the decision makers at Albemarle County Public Schools. And then we're going to have some families that have had multiple kids um, graduate, live through the pandemic, and we're going to hear from the parents and students side what they feel is the future of education. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, from both Kayla and I, we just encourage everybody to stay positive, keep reaching out for help, and remember that we are all in this together. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please listen to our other episodes to gain further insight into the future of education.